this is one of the many days in our year, in our annual calendar, that, that we set aside. It's special. It reminds us of the milestones that we're going through in the seasons of life, that we're on a journey. And so I got to be with these guys last night um, just for a, uh, an event, and, and I, got to, I think I got to most of the kids just saying, thank, welcome, welcome to the youth group and to this season of life. We're very excited about what God has in store for you and for us through you in these next six years in our youth group. And so, so thankful for what Adrian and Kinsey do and in their discipleship efforts of these kids. But it, this is just one of the many milestones that reminds us that of what we learned in First John a few weeks ago, that we are on a journey, that we're on a journey, that we have stages and seasons. So today we round the corner into chapter three of First John. And I want us to consider this morning just one verse, just one verse. And you'll see why here in a minute. So John has covered some incredible material. He has covered some, he's taken some incredible ground in the first half of this book. And he'll do the same in the second half of the book. Although we won't get to all of that this summer in this series. There's just too much there. Even though it's only a five chapter book, I encourage you to read the whole thing in one sitting. At some point, and just let God do what he does when we do that kind of thing. But read John's letter to his churches as if he was writing to you. And, and let God's spirit speak to you through the whole thing. But right here, it's, we're kind of almost in the middle of the book. And it's like John pauses. He pauses. He's overwhelmed and he pauses. He's just covered at the end of chapter 2. He has covered some serious stuff. He is, he is like built up. He's reviewed what we have in the gospel to his, you know, his precious children, he calls them. This, this group of disciples in Asia Minor, a network of churches that got this letter. And and he finally got to like what he really needed to address, that there are serious threats and serious dangers to the glory and the beauty of the gospel that is, that is ours, is what he's telling him. In, in First John's language, he knew there were threats to the love, the life, and the light of the gospel. And so he finally puts a period on that warning, and he's about to move into the rest of the letter, and I feel like he just pauses and when he realizes what could be lost, what, what, is, what is being attacked in his precious children, I think he just gets swept away in, in, in what we have from God. That he gets swept away, so he has to pause. And he has to mention it. This overwhelmingly great thing that God has delivered to us. And this is what he says. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. It just sounds too bible for us, doesn't it? To really capture what we must pause. That's why today, just one verse. We must pause and contemplate what John was contemplating, celebrate what he was celebrating, be overwhelmed by what he was overwhelmed with. I looked in the Greek because I looked in some other translations, and this doesn't have the introductory word. There's a Greek word right at the beginning that the NIV didn't put in there. It says, behold. It's a word we don't use anymore, but it's there. It says, behold. He wants to pause. He wants us to gaze. He wants his people to look at this. Behold this. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. 
It made me pause. And I decided to just turn what he puts in here as an exclamation into a legit question for us today. Because I don't even have to change the wording of that first part. Just the emphasis. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us? Do you know? Do you spend much time? Have you spent any time today or this last week thinking about it? About who we are? We just sang a song declaring who he is and who we are in relation to him. Has it overwhelmed you? Do we know how overwhelming it is and how great it is that we should be called children of God? So today, I, w- I wanted, I spent all week going, how do I just, this one verse, do a reflection on this? And I started, to, I tried to think of an analogy of some kind, some fatherly analogy that puts us in touch with, in some human story or terms with what we have in in God as a father. No other religion has a God introduced as father. The Muslim religion, God is not father. The Hindu religion, there, there's lots of gods. None of them are father. Only the Christian God is introduced as father, Abba, daddy. Have we contemplated how overwhelming it is? I, I put my, my attempt in the bulletin article. You can read that. It's it's hard. It's difficult. It's difficult. But I did find one as I was searching and listening to sermons and reading uh, old books that I have that talk about this and some commentaries. And I found author and preacher John Piper. He he wrote this. He wrote this almost a quarter century ago. But but I found it, read it, and I want to use his. Just to set this up. He wrote this just for some context. He wrote this back in 1995. And it's important for you to know there's a little, he grounds it in a little bit of history. 1995 was when the Civil War was going on in Rwanda. Just the year before was the very famous, some of you don't know about this probably, but we shouldn't remember. We should always remember. A hundred days of genocide happened just the year before in 1994. And so it's in the context of that. So while this is an imaginary, it's based on some of what was really happening in history. And he writes it in a way that asks us to imagine being a child in this story. It's a tad gruesome and desperate in setting up the plight of this child, uh, which is appropriate. Because when we get honest and we get before God and we get into our hearts and underneath the mask, properly understood, our plight is pretty gruesome and desperate as well. And so if you're going to tit for tat explain what we have in God as a father, that we're children of God, we've got to do that. But I know we we don't have children's worship, so I'm going to edit as we go a little bit. And he who has ears, let him hear. I'm going to skip some of his gruesome details. So suppose it's Rwanda a few months ago. And you're a little boy or a little girl playing in your village and suddenly you hear screams and running. You turn to look for a familiar face and all you see are angry, shouting men running towards you with machetes. You run as fast as you can and you hide under a basket that your mother wove next to the hut. In what seems like forever, the silence comes back. And when you come out, everyone is gone or dead. 
you sob yourself to sleep that night on near your mother as the sun goes down. And you wake up and you realize that you're not only terrified that the enemy might come back, but that you are extremely hungry and thirsty. And it hits you. There is no one to turn to. No one to take care of you. No one even to save you if the enemies come back or from the wild animals around your village or from sickness. You are utterly alone. You go into a hut and find some fruit and you eat that fruit and another day passes and you don't have any idea what to do. And you begin to think the very realistic thought that you will just die. Then you hear a sound and you turn and you see a tall man standing in the dirt square. He calls out your name in your own language and says, don't be afraid, I want to help you. You want to run, but there's no place to run. There's no one to run to. So you sit as he comes to you. He leans down and pulls out some bread from his pouch and gives you some, you eat it. Then he gives you some water from his water skin. And then he says, I tried to stop them. You look up at him and you notice lacerations on his arms and his head. And he says, if you come with me, I'll take care of you. I'm very sorry about what has happened to your mother and father. I will help you bury them. As you work together to bury the dead, you begin to talk to this man. And in this conversation, you learn that he actually belongs to the tribe that slaughtered your village and family. You also learn that he and his son were in the tribal meeting when the band decided to raid your village. They disagreed with the raid. They voted against the raid. And when they lost, they put themselves between their kinsmen and your village. As a result... The band of raiders killed the man's son as he tried to protect your village. You stop shoveling as he continues and you suddenly feel an overwhelming sense that this man loves you. It cost him his son to try to save you. Not only that, it gradually comes out as you visit with him that your village has made horrible raids on his relatives in the years past. And that further, your own father was an arch enemy of this very man and had tried several times to kill him. At first, that makes you very afraid. And then, you realize that this man is trying to save you in spite of all of this animosity between your tribes and families. And rather than be afraid, your sense of being loved becomes stronger as he labors on your behalf. Even now, hope starts to rise in your broken heart that maybe there would be life beyond the loss of your mother and father and brothers and sisters. You agree to go with the man. And over the next several months, it doesn't take long for you to learn an almost unbelievable truth that this man 
He has a university education from Oxford that he is a very wealthy businessman as a result with homes in Burundi, but also London and a sheep farm in Yorkshire. You don't understand it all, but over time you learn that not only has this man rescued you from certain death, but he is supplying all your needs and intends to beyond what you could have imagined or would ever ask. He takes you into his home in Burundi. You take long vacations with him to London when he's on business. You visit his sheep farm. And with every new experience, with every new provision, with every new act of love, you feel more and more like he is loving you lavishly. He rescued you. It cost him his son's life in the process. You were part of a tribe that hated him. Your very family hated him specifically. And now as the years go by, you become old enough to start to understand that on top of all this, he is taking care of all of the affairs for you to be his legal son. And you learn that he has signed over all of his wealth to you as an inheritance. So I was trouble. I had trouble. You can see why I was having trouble improving on this because even this, it's just fantastical, isn't it? It's unrealistic. And that's what makes it like our gospel. That's what makes it like our gospel. It's hard to come up with an equivalent story, even in our imagination, that replicates what John is having his precious children reflect on now, that we are to reflect on now. I can't help but imagine one of my buddies, I've had several of these, but one in particular, he was in his 20s and 30s as we were friends. And this was when he was old enough to do what this young man did as he grew up and he was reflecting. He was adopted by his parents. And he, as he got older, he got to discover what it took for them to choose him. And he got to learn what his life might have been like in the situation he was in all before he was aware of it. And so he's retroactively playing out what it means to have his father's last name, to have his mom and dad have done what they did to adopt him, to invest in him, the inheritance that he is set up with because of all of that. And he was, I got to watch as he just in waves got more and more overwhelmed by what it meant to be his parents' child. We need to do that. We need to do that today with God. For God, I don't pretend to understand all this. I just accept it, receive it, let it change me. God sacrificed his son to save us from sin, from death, from hell, whatever that is. God, not only that, But he did that when, and scripture says this, when we were enemies of his. So not only did he do that out of his love, he had to have the wherewithal to overcome his righteous anger towards his enemies in order to give us that gift. He had to lay down justice that he had rights to 
in order to do this for us. That would have been enough, wouldn't it? That would have been enough to be worthy of the worship we gave him today. The gratitude that should be overflowing from our hearts into endless praise and service of this God. That should have been enough. But just like the story that Piper wrote, Scripture tells us that it went, he went way beyond the love of rescue and the love of forgiveness and even the love of the sacrifice of his son. He took us into his family. He had intentions to stay intimate with us from rescue day on, to provide for us, to set us up, to give us an inheritance, to be made, to be called children of God. That would have been enough, isn't it, for this? How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God? He didn't have to do it. I mean, he could have just rescued us and been on his way. Like, if, if we get to my attempt in the Bulletin article, if I thought of, like, a fireman saving a child from a burning building. I mean, that child, if it was me, I think I would remember that fireman for the rest of my life. I might even keep track of him. I might, on the anniversary of my rescue date, my day of salvation, send him a note or cookies or something letting him know, I've not forgotten that I breathe because of you. That would have been enough. But imagine if that fireman saw my plight and adopted me and committed his actual life to me or to you and spent the rest of his life and resources and money and time investing in you or in me, setting us up for success in every way he can, feeding us, caring for us, fathering us, and even signing us in to his inheritance, setting us up for when he passes. I mean, taking nothing away from the rescue moment, that's more, right? That's more. Abundance on top of abundance. And that is what God has done. It's incredible. It's incredible that we've been made children of God through adoption into his family. It's, it's incredible. But believe it or not, believe it or not, it doesn't stop there. And I don't even think that's what John's talking about when he speaks of us being children of God. By that I mean adoption. That's Paul. I searched, I looked. John never, in his gospel, in his letters, he never speaks of adoption. He doesn't disagree with adoption, but he doesn't talk about it. That's Paul. Paul says that. I think he's talking about something else, something even more, if you can believe it. John talks about something that there's no human story, no one. I wouldn't find it anywhere, and I couldn't in my most creative moment come up with something that could exemplify this part of what we have in our Father as children. John speaks not of adoption, but of something called new birth. A new birth. If I found a child that was in need and I wanted to take that child in and I wanted to care for that child and I wanted to invest my life setting that child up for Success as best I can, feeding, nurturing, loving, caring. If I wanted to go through the legal process of adopting that child and giving that child my last name and that child has 
the inheritance that I will leave, such as it is. And I wanted to treat that child as if that young girl or boy was my own flesh and blood. I could do that. But what I could never do is take that child and have her reborn to where she is actually related to me, to where she might take on my characteristics and take on my physical inclinations genetically. I could never do that. And yet John says God does that. It gets that intimate in this gospel we share, guys. It gets that intimate, that real. The love that John has in view here is not the love that takes care of paperwork and adopts, which again would be amazing beyond words, and Paul talks about, and that is true. But John sees more. God moves in. It's something mysterious. It's something we will never have an analogy for. His Holy Spirit moves in. John calls it a seed of God is planted within us. And it imparts something of himself to us. Something of himself, children of God. He gives. He puts it in there. So that we can take on a family resemblance. So that we don't just have the legal power at our back as being children of God. We've got some, it doesn't work, but genetic power. Spiritual power at our back. Helping us along. 1 John 3, 9, just a few verses later, says it like this. No one who is adopted by God, uh, that's not what it says. That's Paul. No one who is born of God practices sin. Because, why? How, how can that even be possible? We get so hung up on sin, and I don't want you to read this for the sin part. We've already covered that. I want you to read this for the power over sin part. No one who is born of God practices sin. Why? Because his seed abides in him. There's something that can't happen anymore because God's in you. There's some genetic, heavenly, spiritual thing that has happened inside of you that that has power. Generations, eons, eternity of power has been placed into you now. And it's having an effect of some sort. It's lavish. It's amazing. Because his seed abides in him. He cannot go on practicing sin because he's born of God. Don't get into the theological conflict right now. I know we all sin. I know we're all going to struggle with that. I know, but I also know we have power over sin and we can defeat sin. And what we're struggling with in five years is different than today. Why? Because the seed of God is in us. We cannot not grow. We can't. Why? Because of the lavishness of the love of God. Because we're his children, not just by adoption, but by some mysterious, powerful, real, practical new birth. If you don't believe in this, then for you it's not true.
For you, you don't get to experience it. And that's why Jesus says, in the thing I will never finish repeating, the work of God is this, to believe. It's to believe. All of the power of the kingdom that we will have in eternity, breaking in and us experiencing now, is experienceable only if you believe. Otherwise, it could happen right in front of you, and you'll miss it. Because you don't believe. You'll write it off as coincidence or luck or something. Or your hard work paying off. That's how you conquered sin. John sees more. Church, if you're a child of God this morning, you are so by adoption, but by more than adoption. You are related to God. You're related to him. More than my kids are related to me. You are related to God. Let me ask our elders and our ministers to go ahead and move around the room just in case you need a touch this morning. But this makes sense of something I want to finish with here that that Paul does say back in Romans 8. Listen to this. It says, Whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Why? So that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So it is true. It is biblically true, church, that in some way, Jesus Christ is God's one and only child. That's biblically true. It says it in Scripture, plain as day, Jesus is God's one and only son. This verse says, it is also biblically true. In a mind-blowing, lavish love, sort of mysterious, paradoxical way, that Jesus is also the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. That's us. You can't be a firstborn unless there's a secondborn and a third. And you just go right on through history. I don't know what number you are in the birth order. But we are children of God. Stand with me here and I want to finish before we sing about who God is and who we are to him. I want us to finish today worshiping in this, with this reflection. But I've read to you the first part of this verse, but he adds one more thing. He says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And it is great to be called children of God. But he adds, just in case you're missing it, just in case you play with his words, and you say, yeah, I'm called a child of God, but I'm not actually a child of God. So he adds one more thing. What does he say? He says, and that is what we are. Church, that is what we are. We are related to God. Amen? Let's sing.